Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, Kendra. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. And I know I mentioned in like my reach out email, but you were, you come highly recommended by um, Dr. Cal. No, that's your last name. What is her name? Dr. Buschultz. Buschultz. Is that how she says Buckholtz. it? Buckholtz. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. A lot of people don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. So, you know, anthropology, some of our listeners might have heard this, some of our listeners might be anthropologists, but if you're not an anthropologist, anthropology is traditionally like a four field study, including archaeology, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, and linguistic anthropology. And if you're a dedicated listener of the podcast, you'll know that there's probably one of those fields that's been severely (laughs) neglected in our conversation, and that's linguistic anthropology. And I think part of the reason is because linguistics is also its own field, and it has connections to lots of things in, you know, speech pathologists, study linguistics, it's not exclusive to anthropologists. So I think that's kind of fun. You know, Kendra comes from a more diverse background, but she was, did graduate from UCSB studying under uh, Dr. Buchholz doing linguistic anthropology. So today she is a postdoctoral student studying sociocultural linguistics at UCLA. And we're going to dive into her research, which is really exciting and fascinating. A lot of it has to do with new media. And as I think everyone knows, you know, the podcast, I'm super interested in ways we can communicate our knowledge in forms of new media. So let's just start out by how you even became in 
interested in linguistics and the social and cultural aspects of the discipline, whether that was, I don't know if you kind of had started in anthro, if you started like in a more traditional like linguistics background. It was actually neither for me. I wasn't linguistics or anthropology in undergrad. Um, so as you were saying, I mean, linguistics is connected to a lot of different fields and other disciplines and, you know, languages and pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, so from one university to another, it can really vary uh, where linguists are or where people with linguistics training end up. Mm -hmm. So they might be in an English department or like languages departments. Um, they could be, if there's a whole linguistics department or program, they might be there. They might be in anthropology. They might be in like communication. So they can yeah, really- that's another example of where the communications. Um, so for me, I came to sort of linguistics proper as like a field of study sort of by chance, I won't say accidentally, um, because based on my interests, it, it was probably inevitable that I would find mm -hmm. it eventually, um, but it wasn't necessarily intentional. Um, I've pretty much always been interested in language in some capacity. Um, so I loved to like read and, and write like from a very young age, um, you know, being my childhood friends would, would write our own like short stories and stuff. <laughs> Looking back on them, they really didn't make any sense, but like, we just loved the process of you know, reading and writing, but I also really liked sort of people watching and like observing what, what people do and why and thinking about like what in someone's life motivates them to do the things that they do and act the way that they act. Um, so in college, I majored in English and also psychology, but where I went to undergrad, University of South Carolina, the English program was actually English language and literature. There, the linguistics program was actually split between the English program and uh, the psychology program. So for both of my majors, I was actually able to take language related courses as electives. And oh, so awesome. um, I got a really wide range of ways to think about language and language study. So I had like, you know, literature and literary analysis from, my, from uh, the English major, but that also had, um, you know, English structure courses, like an English syntax class, um, English sociolinguistics, but I also took courses on like bilingualism and um, what were some other ones? I took a course on like African-American English. Um, and then in psychology, I took courses in like language sciences, sort of broadly conceived, um, but also um, took like a cognitive psychology class that were part of it talked about like language processing. I took a cognitive neuroscience class that talked about, you know, thinking about language in the brain. So I got a really interesting sort of diverse perspectives yeah. on ways to think about language and study it. And so in doing all of those different sorts of language study, it became very clear that like society and culture and identity and like the people mm -hmm. were what really interested me most about studying language. Um, and so that's how I sort of veered more into sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology. And now that I'm thinking back, I don't know that I actually ever took an anthropology course. Maybe I took like an intro one at some point. Um, but the linguistics and structures that I had, um, a lot of them came from like a Lingamp training or Lingamp mm -hmm. background. So that was sort of the exposure that I was getting to linguistics and anthropology anyway yeah um so that's all that's all relevant because <laughs> my undergraduate mentor 
um, who helped me when I realized, you know, I want to go to graduate school. I think I want to study linguistics, but, you know, I didn't know anything about the field of linguistics really and like what types of programs would be good fit. How do I look for that? How do I figure out who would be a good mentor? Um, and so she, um, Elaine Chan, who's at University of South Carolina, um, you know, she helped me really think through like, well, who have I been reading a lot for um, or a lot from and the, the research that I was doing for my undergraduate thesis. Um, and Dr. Mary Buckholz was one of those people. Um, and Dr. Chen and Dr. Buckholz knew each other. And so, you know, this is a very common story yeah. in academia where it's I was like, going to say, so is the world you know of academia. Someone, you know someone and they put you in touch and you're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this would be a really good fit. Yeah. Um, and so it worked out in that way that I applied to the linguistics program at UCSB, which would not have been on my radar being someone who, you know, is from the, the East Coast. And mm-hmm. so... Um, yeah, coming out to UCSD, that's how I ended up there. And the way that linguistics is set up at UCSD is it's sort of separate from the anthropology department. So as you're saying, you know, even though anthropology is typically a four field um, discipline or department um, at UCSD, all the linguistic anthropologists are in the linguistics department. Yeah. And so even though I wasn't in an anthro department, I was getting this anthropological training as far as like doing ethnographic work, reading ethnographic research, um, and thinking about, you know, how anthropology and linguistics work together at the same time, getting more training in like linguistic theory and and doing research and linguistic analysis in that way. So that's sort of how I came to be at this intersection of linguistics and anthropology, but also having pretty broad interests um, Mm -hmm. outside of linguistics and anthropology. And so um, at UCSB, we are trained in sociocultural linguistics, um, so which is a little bit different from how other departments might train students. So it might be more strictly like linguistic anthropology or sociolinguistics, but sociocultural linguistics brings those together, but it's also very intentionally interdisciplinary. So mm-hmm. people who are thinking about language and identity or language and culture, you know, we're engaging with not just anthropology, but also thinking about like ethnic studies, gender studies, um, you know, can be more, for me, more specifically thinking about like black studies or African-American studies, um, communication, media studies, disability studies, right? So there's all these other fields of like humanities and social sciences that can inform our understanding of like what language is doing, how it operates, how it's, you know, being used by people in the world. And so I've had a lot of freedom to really explore sort of how language is in all these different aspects of our lives. Um, And that's how I ended up being in an anthropology department as well. So at UCLA, I'm in the Department of Anthropology, um, since that's where all of their linguistic anthropologists are. Um, But it's also similarly, um, you know, a wide range of work that people do even within linguistic anthropology, but it's also a four-field department um, that's pretty unique in the way that it's set up as well, because there's also um, you know, a lot of people doing like medical anthropology and I think that's considered like not technically one of the four fields or there's some, there's it, some department. It's, it's like a subfield in my opinion of cultural. It's like a specific methodological approach that's more like in line with cultural anthropology in, in okay. my opinion. At least that's the impression I got from the medical anthropology class that I took at UCSB. But your story to me is really reminiscent of um, one, one of my best friends and former roommate who 
you know, pursuit, she was in the linguistics department and psychology her whole time at UCSB. And she's now, uh, she wanted to, to have that so that she could go into, um, like a therapy psychology grad school program. And so that's what Mm. she's doing now. And it's just really unique. I think, I mean, any field, like you can take your skills and apply them elsewhere. And I think it's really cool to, to see, you know, where that happens. I think so often we think, or we can be influenced to think that there is a box we have to be in, um, whether that's uh, a career or um, a field or a department. And it's really just, everything is so, can be so interconnected if it's at the right place. And I think uh, UCSB does maybe not the best job of that because I do feel like linguistics is so separate, but I'm glad to hear that with in linguistics, it's very open, but it's just my own fault. I needed to get my butt over to linguistics, but now I'm graduating and and there's no more time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's actually, this is sort of like the great irony of linguistics is like everyone uses language in some way. We all, you know, we read, rewrite, whatever. Um, We use language all the time in our daily lives Um, and not limited to writing and speech, right? There's sign language and, you know, visual communication and all of that. But linguistics as like a field of study, linguistics as a major or minor, um, a lot of people's experiences like mine, where you don't know it exists until you get to college and you like take a course and you're like, wow, this is great and fun and interesting. Like I can do more of this. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so there's been, you know, especially in the past um, few years, well, more than the past few years, but there's recently been a big push within linguistics to make it more accessible like have there be more public knowledge about linguistics as a field so that before coming to college um, or university that students know that it exists and so you know a, a way of thinking about like you know how can we make sure that the students who are in linguistics as undergraduates as graduate students is reflective of the general population of students who are pursuing higher education, basically, you know, how do we make the field more diverse? It is still Mm -hmm. a predominantly white field. Um, And part of that has been this problem of like students don't know linguistics is an option until they get to to, to college, but they've already selected a major. And then, you know, they might have very particular plans depending on, um, you know, their options for funding or if they're working through school, right? They can't add on another major or, mm-hmm. you know, they don't find about out about it until their second or third year. And then or like, the well, requirements year. or the requirements are so different that it's like by the time, like, say you're a sophomore, it's like, did I just waste time taking all these classes that are now not even applicable to my major? Not even that mm-hmm. the classes were a waste of time because, you know, you still learn something from them, but credit wise, they may not be able to apply towards if you're switching to like linguistics. You were just mentioning right before we broke off that, you know, um, linguistics is a still a predominantly white field. And I'm curious, you know, your own background as being a woman of color, how perhaps that's maybe impacted influenced I don't necessarily want to say it's a bad thing but maybe just how how it's contributed to your journey within in your field so I mean it's something that's been relevant to my whole educational experience I mean being a black woman who's attended all predominantly white institutions basically since kindergarten um so it's not a new experience but I think um 
in a lot of ways coming into linguistics and linguistic anthropology as someone outside of that discipline, um, particularly mm-hmm. at the graduate level. Um, I didn't have any sort of preconceived notions necessarily about like what was quote unquote the norm. So a lot of times when you, depending on the training that you get, what program you go to as an undergrad, you get a lot of messages about like, oh, this is just, this is the way the field is. This is just how we do things. This is who leads the field. This is what we study, right? So a lot of things get really normalized. And so maybe going into grad school, you think, oh, well, this is just how linguistics is. This is just how anthropology is. This is just how, you know, mm-hmm. in- insert, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I can really understand. Here. And so not sort of having any of those ideas about like what it was, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be like, mm-hmm. I could sort of come in and like look around and be asking questions like, why are we learning it this way? Or who is this person? Or like, is this how everyone does it? Because mm-hmm. um, most, I think when I started my program, I was the only person who didn't have either a BA or an MA in linguistics. And so I was really coming in, like asking genuine questions about yeah, like, kind of oh, challenging how you guys did it in undergrad or like, yeah challenging any preconceived notions yeah yeah and so um I think that was part of it um but also you know coming into a a majority white department um just having a different perspective on like what people did and how they did it um because a lot of times white people aren't going to question each other's actions because they don't sort of notice things because they do the same thing or Mm -hmm. those are the types of things that have been normalized um and so yeah part of that experience of just like having a very particular view on like what people did in linguistics and the type of people that were in linguistics definitely shaped I think it shaped sort of how I moved through grad school more than the research that I did specifically. Um, I feel like I've I've been very lucky um, to have been in the program and have an advisor who gave me a lot of freedom to really pursue, you know, what interested me and that's changed over time. Um, Isn't that funny how our interests just evolve? I've been going through that and your brain, like you're almost like your heart, like thinks one thing. I won't, you know, I won't limit it to an organ your what you thought you wanted can be so different from what you actually want have -hmm. you had that it's a wild because it feels like two sides of your brain are fighting yeah and especially when you get messages about like you know linguistics as I was saying you know languages and everything in theory could be this really amazingly broad and, and diverse field but there are also a lot of people who have very narrow ideas about what counts as linguistics Um, And so that's another reason that linguists end up oftentimes not in linguistics department. It might not be a a matter of, is there a linguistics major or department or program or whatever at this institution, but like what type of people are in that and what type of research do they accept? What do they think is, you know, quote unquote rigorous or like good (laughs) linguistics research. And so, you know, that's another sort of discipline drama there but you know a lot of people receive messages about like oh if you want to do that research you're never going to get a job if you want to do that research you won't get into grad school like or you know find pick a different discipline you'll only get a master's you won't get into a phd whatever um so there's a lot of this sort of messaging circulating as far as like what you should do mm-hmm. um even though when given the freedom you know people have a lot of 
amazing different types of ideas. Um, that will just- ultimately progress the field. Like, do you know what I mean? That's what mm-hmm. I don't understand about people that want almost like drone bees is it's like, how do you ever expect the field to grow? How do you expect research to grow? We can't just keep regurgitating the same things. There has to be original idea without original idea. We get nowhere. Yeah. And I mean, this is the conversation that's happening in anthropology as well as like, as particularly black and indigenous anthropologists are saying like, things have, things have to change. Like if you want more people of color, if you want more people from minoritized groups to be in anthropology, you can't just like sprinkle them across departments and then be like, yeah. okay, here you go. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, and want them to feel empowered, ask questions, the way that we do ethnography, mm-hmm. the way that we engage with these communities that we work with. And for many, you know, scholars of color, scholars from minoritized groups, the communities that we're interested in are communities that we come from. And historically that has not been the case in anthropology because it is you know, based in this colonial legacy of outsiders coming into communities doing this very extractive sort of research and then leaving. And so now that people are saying, well, no, we can't keep doing this. This is damaging. This is harmful to communities. It's harmful to scholars, you know, who come from these communities who want to do ethical work. Um, You know, but then people saying, well, that's not how we do anthropology. Like we do it at X, Y, Z. It's like, well, do you want the field to stay exactly the same for the next hundred years? Like, no. Maybe they do because they benefited from it. But, you know, realistically, people change, academia changes, society changes. And so anthropology, linguistics, you know, any sort of discipline of research Mm -hmm. that is engaged with people um, is also going to have to change as well. And so I think that's part of, I mean, it's not a new issue, but I think now that now there's a, a, a critical mass of people who are a very vocal yeah. majority. And so it's an issue that now can't just be like swept mm-hmm. aside. It's like, oh, you know, it's like just a couple of people and like, that's, it's a personal issue. It's just them over there. But like, you know, you can see this across departments and, yes. and not just in the US, but you know, wherever, wherever anthropology is study of people really pushing against the field. But oftentimes that comes at a risk of, you know, will I be seen as like mm-hmm. a troublemaker, rabble rouser? I don't know if I'm using these terms for like the yeah. 1950s, but, um, you know, people who are just going to create quote unquote drama in the department and make things harder than they need to be when they could just like go with the flow. And so people really having to weigh, you know, do I want to wait until I'm in a more secure position, mm-hmm. right? When I'm already in my grad program, when I have a job, when I, when I know I have funding, when I'm not in this really tenuous position of like, will this derail my career to advocate for myself and, you know, for communities and for the things that I believe in. And so I think to your point about, you know, having these feelings of like, my brain is telling me to do one thing, but like what I really want to do is something else. Oftentimes that's not just like an individual or a personal sort of dilemma, but it's tied to these larger, you know, structural issues and pressures that put um, a lot of people from marginalized groups in these really difficult positions. And so um, I think that's always something to keep in mind. And, and I'm very cognizant of, um, you know, I keep using the, the phrase that I was really lucky, but like thinking in the large scope of academia and how unfortunately how toxic it can often be that like I had an experience where even though I was the only black person in my department for several years 
I never felt like that was going to be the thing that would stop me from pursuing the research that I wanted to. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot about how when I was doing my grad school applications, um, my undergraduate mentor asked me if I was interested in studying African-American English um, since I'd taken a, a course on it. And, you know, I thought it was interesting, but I was like, no, I really don't think that that's like what I'm going to study. I think it's cool. And, you know, I'll you know, look at it and pay attention to it or whatever. But like, I don't think I'm going to actively research it. Um, at this point, I don't even remember what I said I was going to research yeah. in my applications. You know, that was however, eight, eight, nine years ago at this point. Um, but, you know, now that's like the heart of my research is like looking at African-American mm-hmm. language and culture in these different contexts. And so that was just sort of a natural progression for me, but it wasn't something that I felt pressured to do even though a lot of times there is an expectation that, you know, like black people are going to study black language and culture. And that's like the only thing that they're qualified for, which is its own, you know, weird racist thing that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, as my work sort of veered more into that area, no one really questioned like, oh, well, why are you studying that now instead of like what you said you were going to study when you came in? So again, like having that freedom to, Mm -hmm pursue all these different areas of research is something that I don't take for granted. And I don't, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm just really appreciative of having that experience. But yeah, I think to come back to your original question of like, you know, how being a black woman in academia has like shaped, um, sort of my research or, or how I've moved through, you know, that experience, I think, um, a lot of the like service work and sort of like activism work that I've done in academia is very tied to that. Um, you know, being cognizant of having had a good, you know, an overall positive experience in my department, despite being the only Black person there for, I forget how, however many years it was, um, that that was not the case for a lot of other students on campus, that we were very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We were, we were sort of scattered <laughs> to yeah. the four corners um, of campus. And so, you know, having like the Black Graduate Student Association as a space for us to come together, Mm -hmm. regardless of, you know, what discipline we were in, what field, what we were studying, um, and thinking about how, you know, institutional structures really shape the types of educational experiences that we're able to have, because particularly at the graduate level, things related to, you know, funding, as far as like, you know, salary, are we a teaching assistant, a research assistant? Um, Is our tuition covered? Do we have funds to help us go to conferences and things like that? And so the way that things like funding work in different disciplines or in different departments um, can really impact students from minoritized backgrounds um, in different ways, you know, that applies to like first generation Mm -hmm. scholars, undocumented scholars, like anyone who's not sort of like white, male middle to upper class who used Mm -hmm. to be I mean still is but yeah it was kind of like the undergraduate and graduate scholar and that's who these programs were designed around Mm -hmm. um again this idea of like academia not changing to catch up with Mm -hmm. you know who's actually in the classroom and who's actually doing research and so um all this being a very long way of saying that like my individual scholarship you know I always understood that like my way of wanting how I wanted to do research 
um, and having the freedom to do the research that I wanted in the way that I wanted was not the experience that other people had. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, wanting to use the other skills and resources that I had to support other Black scholars and other scholars Mm -hmm. of color on campus um, and that requiring like working as a group, but also thinking about how are things operating outside of my yeah. own advisor advisee relationship or my own department or you know even my own college you know thinking like arts and sciences versus yeah. engineering and things like that I'm happy um, to know you had that community though of the graduate student black it was a graduate black graduate black graduate association. Student association yeah the BGSA. yeah that's that's really great and I think um community just can't be undervalued um in in any form but it's particularly like you said within a a minoritized group that are spread out actually physically being brought together um to look each other in the eye and have those conversations I'm sure is you know very impactful rather than like oh I heard I heard that this is going on in this department from through the grapevine it's like no someone told me to my face and then we're able to discuss that problem and like you were saying maybe institute larger institutional uh, uh, practices that contribute to creating that problem. I think it's really, really powerful. And um, I think this is a good time to talk about uh, the, re- the project that you're working on right now, and um, which is uh, an anthrop- a linguistic anthropological examination of Black culture and language on TikTok. Now, I know that this is kind of a project you're still working on. So just tell us what you can about sort of the goals and the aim. We'll keep all the, the nitty gritty details until the research comes out. But I am just excited to hear about, you know, the research questions that you're asking and looking at in this in this new media, which I think particularly during the pandemic, TikTok had such a boom, which was at a similar time that Black Lives Matter was having a boom. So I'm, yeah, I'm ready to learn. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this project, so I will say I was part of the, part of the herd, part of the sheep that joined TikTok in the early pandemic days. Um, I had resisted for a long time, but I had a friend who was already on it and she was always sending me videos and I was like, okay, fine, fine. I'll just get on TikTok. And then once I actually got on, that was, that, you know, mm-hmm. now I'll never get off. Yeah. Um, but it, it really builds on previous work that I did looking at um, Black communities and, and discourse practices and cultural practices on Tumblr, which is like a multimedia mm. blogging platform um, that some people may be familiar with, um, but also Vine, so another video-based platform. So um, no longer with us, but always in our hearts. Is what yes, really. But TikTok um. <laughs> is just like Vine reinvented. Like it really is. Like when TikTok became a thing, I was like, I'm confused. Isn't this just Vine? Um, is also, this is totally like off topic. Is Tumblr still like a thing? Can people still like post on Tumblr? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, wow. it's still an That's active crazy. platform. It is just very, very different from mm-hmm. how it was in its heyday of, you know, like 2013, Yeah, like blogger girls and stuff. Yeah. Tumblr. <laughs> and, and part of that has to do with, I think it's been now bought and sold oh. like twice, at least twice um, to different companies. And so, and then each of those companies has instituted different regulations. And so mm-hmm. that has changed a lot of just sort of what people could do 
on Tumblr, what, what sort of content people felt safe or able to create on Tumblr has changed a lot. Um, and also, you know, society, culture has changed, you know, yeah. there's kind of ebbs and flows as far as what platforms are popular at, at certain times. Mm -hmm. So I've been, you know, my first social media platform was Zanga, uh, which was like I've even online, <laughs> uh, it was like an online journal blog type of thing. So like live journal was like for more like adults who knew how to like code and do that sort of stuff. Um, Zanga was for the middle school girls who were like every two days were like, let me do a survey about myself. Let me answer 50 yeah. questions about myself that no one asked for. It was all just like, what's your favorite color? Like, what did you wear today? And then me and my friends would just send each other mm -hmm. these surveys that we did on Zanga. So it was really just like an online diary. Yeah. Um, but, you know, moving from that and then like when MySpace became really popular and then I like, I distinctly remember being on MySpace. I think that was really popular when I was like a freshman in high school. Um, and then when Facebook started, beca like became mainstream, I think this was like 2007 was probably around when I joined Facebook. And I remember being like, okay, I'll get on Facebook. Cause like everyone's doing it, but <laughs> I don't think it's going to last. I'll probably be on here for like maybe a year. And then everyone's just going to go back to MySpace. and how wrong I was, how very, very yeah. wrong I was <laughs> now Facebook is meta the world. <laughs> yeah. And it's like this whole in, thing in ways that are not good, but no. you know. That 17 year old mm -hmm. me would not have predicted. So I think, you know, there's sort of internal things to platforms yeah. that change what people do and how popular they are, but also external factors as well. Um, yeah. So this project on TikTok. So I will say when I first learned about TikTok, I also had a similar feeling of like, oh, it seems like this is just like a new Vine, basically. Yeah. Vine 2.0 was like what everyone was calling it. Um, and that's how I felt initially because, you know, that Vine loyalty, it, it, it's, it's hard to get rid of. Um, but once I was on the platform, I was like, oh, there's a lot of other things happening on here. Um, so a, a, another project that I'm working on is looking at how basically like the lingering influence of Vine, particularly particularly the styles of videos that people post to social mm. media. So because Vine had this, for, for most of its existence, had this like six second limit, but also the loop, like those two factors like really, really shaped how people created content on Vine. And I think because even though in some ways it's, Vine was like sort of niche, um, in my head, I was like, oh, everyone's on Vine. It's like so popular. Um, but there's actually a lot of people who are like, oh, I only know Vine because like people sent them to me or like, I only know it because you would send me Vines. Like, me. <laughs> like I was not actually on it. And I was like, oh, interesting. I like had this perception that it was a lot more widespread than it actually mm -hmm. was. But I think because now there are a lot of like sort of canonical classic vines that continue to circulate. You know, there were like YouTube compilations, mm -hmm. we see them on TikTok, people yeah. post them on Instagram. Um, that particular style, like this short, pithy, sort of like in the moment, like real quick and dirty sort mm -hmm. of style of whether it's comedy or this sort of absurdist, the whole like do it for the vine culture. Like I'm gonna do this prank and destroy my own property, but like hopefully it gets me lots of views. <laughs> sort of idea like how this really yeah. seeped into social media beyond vine and even after the platform shut down 
And so I think a lot of that is evident in TikTok in a lot of ways, but I think also because TikTok as a platform has a lot more like technological capabilities. You can do a lot yeah. more with like special effects and sounds and text and images and you know, people can edit videos off the mm -hmm. platform and upload those. So you just see a, a much wider oh, yeah. range of um, types of content. And also uh, TikTok being global, whereas Vine was more um, localized. It was like specific to the, to yeah. the US. Um, so there's a lot of different factors where there's definitely overlap. I think without Vine, there might be a different orientation to TikTok as far as like how people felt about sort of like short form videos. Yeah. Um, but it was sort of already in the, yeah. in the culture, I guess, you know, internet culture. It was, and, and now we see people like posting sort of short quippy videos to like uh, Twitter. Yeah. And so Instagram to, reels. Yeah. Like, yeah. So just the idea of like, oh, you can, you know, record a short video, find something really funny that fits in this short amount of space um, and make it your own. Mm -hmm. And now that TikTok has, I think you can do 15 second, 60 second, but up to three minutes as well. They mm -hmm. just added that sort of expansion, yeah. um, which is reminiscent of when Vine expanded from six seconds to, I think, like a full minute and then more to like a couple minutes. So people started doing sort of like short films basically on Vine. Um, but that's, that's just yeah. a discussion. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I'm really interested in how sort of all of these different factors work we're coming together or, or do come together on TikTok, right? You have this big, it's this global platform and also different features are available in different places. So sometimes people will post a video and they're like, oh, when the sound isn't available in your country and it's them doing like, <laughs> like singing the song because they can't play the song as a sound mm -hmm. in their country yet. Um, so people getting really creative as far as like, how do you engage with what's popular on the platform yeah. right now? Um, and for me, I joined the platform and it didn't take very long until the algorithm, you know, started populating my For You page with mostly content from Black creators. Um, and it was very easy for me to tell that there was a lot that was happening that was like uniquely Black in the sense of like Black people performing or talking about Black culture from a Black perspective, right? So it wasn't non-Black people creating content about Blackness. It was Black people creating content about their lived experiences as Black people. I'm particularly focused on Black people in the U.S., particularly African-American communities, but understanding that, you know, Blackness even in the U.S. is, is diasporic, it's diverse, um, and it's always connected to Blackness around mm -hmm. the world. Um, but as someone who is born and raised in the U.S., right, that's the culture, that's the experience that I know. So that's what mm -hmm. I'm focused on. Um, but just the ways that people were bringing existing Black cultural practices, so like ways of speaking to each other, forms of humor, different embodied practices, you know, stances being one, but also just the ways that people gestures that they do, facial expressions, just ways of looking at each other. Um, mm -hmm you know, an interaction and seeing ways that people were, were replicating this, were performing this on TikTok, um, but also the way that Black people were using this as a space for engaging in like cultural conversations. So talking yeah. about, you know, what's happening in the world, what's happening within Black communities, the good and the bad, mm -hmm. right? Talking about 
wins celebrities, you know, sociopolitical movements, but also like colorism and homophobia mm-hmm. and classism, right? All of these yeah. things still exist um, among, you know, minoritized groups as well. And so just the way that I could see sort of across the the community of Black TikTok, which is really the sort of amorphous like network of users, but people people know each other, some only online, some people, you know, IRL. Um, but the way that people were engaging in conversations and really sort of laying out how heterogeneous, how diverse Blackness is. And I saw that as something really important happening and something that hadn't been possible in the same way prior to TikTok um, as far as uh, being the sort of, so I'm calling it like the way that Black TikTok is documenting um, Black culture and life because it's, again, it's from their own perspectives, but it's not a, it's mediated, but it's not necessarily, it's not like a film or a TV show, right? Where it's the scripted, it's meant to be, you know, maybe it has to cater to particular audiences so they'll get renewed for a season, right? There's different factors that come into Mm. play with like entertainment media that's different from people filming a video in their bedroom talking about something that they experienced or noticed or something that their mom It's more authentic. Yeah. So there's more of a freedom in what people can post, you know, barring TikTok's messed up censorship that tends to suppress Black content creators. Um, but that's again <laughs> another conversation. Um, but the way that because it was audio, it, it's an audiovisual platform. But people could, you know, share photos that they found from a photo album. They mm-hmm. could make a recording of a family interaction into a sound or something. Right? There's just yeah. a lot of options for how people can create this sort of digital archive of what life is like for Black people right now, but also bring in aspects of like, you know, history, right? You can show a video from the past and digitize it and post that on TikTok. Um, And it's in conversation with other online Black communities like Black Twitter um, and also thinking about, I've done some work looking at Black Tumblr um, and how TikTok allows for people to draw in and draw on the conversations that were happening in those spaces and the, the sort of digital discourse practices that people created in those spaces, um, but also do new things that are, that are unique to to TikTok again, because it's this platform with specific uh, technologies available. Um, So that's what I'm sort of diving into is just trying to get a a sense of, you know, what are people talking about? How are they talking about it? As a linguistic anthropologist, I'm particularly interested in how people are representing um, African-American language and interactional practices, embodiment, um, both in just when people are having like natural conversation with each other, but also in the ways that people, if they do like sort of a funny sketch about like their family or, you know, it's some sort of interaction that they had, like how are they representing African-American language and those sorts of performances as well, but also like meta commentary about language. Um, also thinking about, you know, we're in this moment of like heightened awareness around different forms of discrimination and marginalization. And so the way people are recognizing, you know, expectations around like code switching at work or in school, you know, and mm-hmm. people are saying like, I should be able to bring my uh, full authentic self 
to the workplace. I shouldn't yeah. have to, I shouldn't be expected to speak like the white people around me to be perceived as professional, right? So the way that people are having these larger conversations yeah. around like how does language tie into racial identity and experiences of racialization or well, yes, racialization, but also racism um, and the different sort of social spaces that they occupy um, and the unique ways that people are able to engage in forms of resistance and um, forms of activism and social media space as well, which is something that I've looked at um, in my mm -hmm. previous research. So yeah, I'm still in the sort of early stages <laughs> of it. Um, mm -hmm. TikTok is, an, is a interesting platform because it is structured so differently from a lot yeah. of other media platforms where with a platform like Tumblr, even in my, my Vine work, you can take a more, what's seen as a more sort of traditional like ethnographic approach where you're like, here's the specific community that I wanna study. I know that these are, you know, particular users who are in this community here is sort of how I identify mm -hmm. them. Um, and with TikTok so much is determined by the algorithm yeah you know, yeah I can follow particular users but sort of how how I come to find black Others. TikTok content creators in the first place um, a lot of that is outside of my control yeah um, so I've tried to like train the algorithm to show me uh, black content and it's yeah. that's worked pretty well but also you know TikTok is notorious for if something political is happening um, or if there is just anything happening on the platform that would be to TikTok's detriment that again, there's always, you know, we talk about like the algorithm, um, but it's always, it's humans. Yeah. The all this sort of stuff. And so they can always step in. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever been on TikTok on a day where you're like, it's only showing me videos where it has like at least a million likes mm. or it's showing me videos. I've seen all of these videos before. Why is it showing me videos I've only seen before? And so those could be seen as glitches and sometimes they are just glitches, but also sometimes that could be an intentional yeah. practice. Like someone is stepping mm -hmm. in and suppressing particular types of videos and highlighting <laughs> other types of videos. Interesting. Um, so even though I'm taking like an ethnographic approach and I want an ethnographic understanding of black TikTok, what that looks like is different just yeah. because the platform is structured. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's so cool. I think you're really just like on the edge of this technology and this like revolution and it's so cool because I think so often it's like one of those things where someone will wait wait for tech to I can't, I can't speak today <sighs> for someone to wait for TikTok to be 10 years old and then try and look at the effects it's had over 10 years I think the impact of doing a study like this right now kind of at at the at the growing point of TikTok is so impressive and shows so much specific originality and initiative that I think ultimately like will be such a touchstone going forward. Like, I mean, really you could be creating scholarship that like, you know, starts like a field around looking at TikTok as a, as a social, as a social, um, change as a, so as a way to examine our social patterns. I think it's so fascinating. Um, and, um, I'm going to ask you this first, cause I don't know if you want to talk on it, but when you were talking about like certain, um, like black phrases, I know I had a, um, a friend, I suggested they listen to a podcast episode with one of my, um, African-American guests. And I used the phrase that she was very well-spoken. 
And I think, and I feel extremely lucky that I have friends that can directly say, you know, that can come across as a microaggression. And even though I know your intention wasn't that, like, it's actually like um, racist to say that about someone who, who is, is black. And I'm not sure if that's something you want to touch on. It just like that got brought to my mind just because like even the phrase well-spoken like has to do with language. So, but I'll leave that up to you. You definitely don't have to touch on it. It's just something that like I experienced. So I don't know if it's maybe something that we could share with the listeners, like why it's a microaggression from someone like with a linguistic standpoint. Yeah. So that's that. So the idea of like well-spoken mm-hmm. or usually the, the word is articulate is the mm-hmm. word that, that gets sort of thrown around a lot. So there's actually a great book called um, Articulate Well Black by uh, Geneva Smitherman and H. Samuel Leem, who are both linguistic anthropologists. And it's focused on uh, Barack Obama's language practices, but using oh. that as a lens to talk about how Black people and Black language practices are policed and um, sort of like hyper analyzed in US context, but also, you know, outside of the US because it's tied to anti blackness and ideas about, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote proper language. But the short answer of it is it's usually given as like a, a kind of backhanded compliment almost of like, oh, wow, you're like surprisingly articulate for a black person who I wasn't expecting to be able to put it like a coherent string of words together is sort of like the underlying message of how that's usually used. Um, or how so, someone receives it, how someone understands it when they hear it. Yeah. And so a lot of times, especially in like academia or professional context where it's like, well, the person wouldn't have been invited to give this speech or they wouldn't have been invited to give a presentation if they weren't well-spoken, if they couldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, express themselves well. And so giving that as a compliment, especially if it's the sort of the only thing that's commented on, as opposed to saying like, you had really great ideas or, um, you know, you made me think about something differently, but it's like, oh, wow, you were well-spoken. Like I was able to follow what you were saying. It's like, well, yes, that's sort of like the baseline (laughs) goal for giving a presentation. And so thinking about who gets those types of quote unquote compliments of like, oh, you're really well-spoken. You were really articulate um, compared to comments like, you know, that was amazing. That was Mm -hmm. groundbreaking. That was really transformative. That made me think about this thing so differently. Mm -hmm. Um, Or even just like, like just like content questions about like what they're presenting. Like, can you explain this more? Like Mm -hmm. that that was confusing. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because people can, people can be very well-spoken um, and have bad ideas <laughs> like that's yeah, a reality no as well so the idea of like getting so focused on like the fact that someone can put like mm-hmm. a, a, a clear sentence together is like so um you know to the person who makes this you know your articulate compliment that they get so distracted by that that they're not even really focusing mm-hmm. on like the content of what the person is saying yeah um that's where that's coming in as like how yeah. this can come across as a microaggression mm-hmm. um and yeah, just historically that like that word in particular, like people have just really latched onto this mm-hmm. word articulate in particular yeah. to describe black people's speech when they're sort of like surprised that it happens. Like I've gotten that comment before I've gotten it in, um, you know, teaching evaluations before where I'm like, I know the student intended it as a compliment, but it still reads as like, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. Why would it be why... up in front of a, a classroom of students yeah. trying, you know, trying to share and impart Mm -hmm. knowledge and engage in dialogue if I wasn't well-spoken if I didn't know 
you know, I also get comments about like, she really knows what she's talking about. Like, again, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have been given this yeah. uh, responsibility if, you know, the faculty who make decisions about who teaches what yeah. classes didn't think that I, mm-hmm. you know, was knowledgeable enough to, to yeah. teach this class. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you might say it and then someone points it out mm-hmm. and yeah. you're like, oh, okay, now I'll be more cognizant of, yeah. uh, yeah. You know, how, and I think how I described that I enjoyed someone's presentation. Yeah. And I think that that is an important thing to discuss. Cause like you said, like there, there is a large community in which their intentions behind their language use is to be racist, to be discriminatory. And then there are people that are trying to train themselves to avoid language that is historically discriminatory. So I think it's really great that we can respectfully empower people for example like you explaining that like I said my friend who pointed it out to me like in a respectful but direct manner not underscoring that you did use something that was whatever intention wrong shouldn't be used but then arming people with the knowledge as to why and um, I think that that's really important and I'm glad that we touched on it and I'm appreciative of you even just wanting to like explain it to me just because like I said, it's something very small that I've um, run into and want to share with others because we all grow. Knowledge is power. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I've seen great suggestions around um, like if you are, and this applies not just to Black people, but just in mm-hmm. general, like if you are really struck by someone's language trying to pinpoint what it is right if mm. like I was just listening to uh, an academic talk and someone gave a, an anthropology presentation and I was really struck by um the way that they wrote so they were they were reading a paper and they had all this really beautiful like imagery and metaphors and so if I wanted to give them a compliment about the presentation that I would probably say I really loved the way that you used imagery in your writing right rather than saying like oh that was a really like well put together presentation like mm-hmm. you, you were really well spoken in that presentation if you can really pinpoint like yeah. what it is specifically that you're drawn to that you liked about that presentation then that tells the person that you aren't just giving like a blanket compliment or that you were like mm-hmm. surprised that it was even good but that there was something really specific and you took the time to like sit with it and think about what it was um, and, and pinpoint it and I think you know when I've gotten feedback like that where I'm like oh wow they were like really mm-hmm. listening to what I was saying and they we're paying attention, you know, they remembered this one exact phrase that I use and like even said it back to me. Yeah. And so those types of compliments or, or comments, I personally, I, I like those. I can't mm-hmm. speak on behalf of anyone. So yeah. I don't want it to come across as like, you can't ever, you know, comment on someone's speech, but like, if you are going to like, be very specific about what it is. So it's clear yeah. that you were like meaningfully engaged with what the person was saying. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. Just being, um, showing that you were engaged, showing that you were interested and actually, actually caring, super important. And again, I'm appreciative of you, you know, giving that advice. I'm sure our listeners will benefit from it. Um, the last question I have for you is a fun one. I'm just curious, like what podcasts you're listening to, what, you know, maybe our listeners can, uh, find something new to listen to. I'm too busy as much as I wish. I have my like couple podcasts that I'm like addicted to the day they come out. I'm like, I have to listen right now. Um, (laughs) but maybe, but maybe something will catch my attention as well. So I'm a, I'm a big podcast fan. So I have a, a long list, but I'll try to give a a range. Um, so one that I just listened to yesterday because I like to listen to it when I cook. It's called Gastropod. 
Um, and it's one where they talk about, at this point, I should have their little like slogan memorized, but they talk <laughs> about food through the lens of history and culture, I think is how they frame it. And so they take really like mundane seeming things about food and give you this like whole long history or like current food trends that, That's that I awesome. just to was about um, like plant-based meat alternatives. And so talking about like the science behind those and how they're meant to be more environmentally friendly and, you know, seeing like, is that true? How does it work? How do they get that taste right? I mean, going to the different like laboratories and factories where the food's mm -hmm. produced, um, you know, they had a whole episode about garlic and like how it came to be such a popular, um, you know, ingredient and in lots of food. So, you know, if you're someone who likes to cook or just sort of likes little, you know, food-based trivia, that's mm -hmm. a good one. Um, what, another one I just started listening to that is actually related to anthropology is called Zora's Daughters. Which I was hoping you were going to say that because I was going <laughs> to recommend it to you if you didn't already listen. Um, so that's a great one. So it's two Black women anthropologists mm -hmm. talking about their experience being yeah. Black women anthropologists. We're like cousin podcasts because we're both under the American Anthro um, podcast library. So I'm always like promoting them and love them. They're great. They're doing awesome work. Yeah. Um, let's see what else. Oh, so I really like humor and comedy. Um, so I listen to a podcast called Good Ones. It's from mm. Vulture. And so it's the, the general model is the host interviews, uh, usually a stand-up comedian about a particular bit from one of their performances. Oh. And they talk about like how they came up with the joke, how they ended up in you know the final form that they have usually from a special. Um, so it's really interesting to hear the comedian's process for what inspired the joke. Like, was it based on a real event or did they like make it up? How did they refine it over time? Um, would they perform it differently if it's something that they performed in the past? Um, so that's a really interesting one to me. Um, I also like just sort of like trivia types of podcasts. So there's one called No Such Thing as a Fish. I'm really glad that you shared those podcasts with us. You know, it was actually something like in the first, so this is my second season of the podcast. I took a bit of a break during the summer because I just found I kind of wanted to break it up into seasons rather than just like one continuous stream of episodes. And I used to ask my guests very often in the first season, what is a book or a podcast they would recommend for our listeners? So it's kind of nice to bring that back. I've just been like so busy that I haven't even thought about it. And then I was like, oh, you used to do so many book recommendations and you don't anymore. And it's like, oh, because you literally have not had time to pick up a book since the last time you did a book recommendation. That's why. That's <laughs> very real. Yeah. Someone just recommended to me. Um, so there's a podcast series, but it's called the New Books Network. And so um, they have podcasts where it's, you know, new books in and they have it by discipline. So there's like a whole bunch of them. But if you go to the New Books Network website, that you can sort of just, it's easier for me. It's easier awesome. to browse that way than looking through the whole podcast yeah. feed, but you know, they would have like new books in anthropology, anthropology, new books in language, new books in media studies, new books in social sociology, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. Um, in each interview for each episode, they interview an author about a book that they've released in the last usually year or two. Cool. Um, so that's one way I just found out about it. Like in, in yeah. the past week, but oh, awesome! Um, the person you recommended it said it's a good way of uh, sort of keeping up to date with mm -hmm. like new big releases in your particular field of study. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very easy to recommend books. It's harder to read them 
and like keep pace with mm-hmm. <laughs> people's yep. recommendations, yep. especially since stuff is always coming out. But yeah, that's one thing I like about podcasts in particular is like, I can listen to them when I'm doing mm, other yes. things and still feel like, okay, I like made my dinner or cleaned or mm-hmm. whatever, but like also listened and like learned some new information about whatever it was that I was listening yeah. to. So it's awesome. I like that you listen to that one while you're cooking. I think that's really smart. It probably makes you like more um, conscious of the cooking process and everything. I love yeah. It. A good, a really good tip. So I mentioned the, the gastropod um, garlic episode and a really good tip that I learned in that episode was that you, after you chop up garlic, you should let it sit for like at least 10 minutes before you put it into whatever you're cooking. I don't remember the science of it, but basically it was like, when you give it this rest period, it's just more flavorful before you like cook it down or like roast it or whatever. It's it. That's something that I've incorporated into my cooking. Cooking advice from Kendra Calhoun. <laughs> Which I am not. Linguistic anthropologist. qualified to give, but you know, Love I listened it. to this podcast one time and now I'm mm-hmm. going to share that, share yep. that wisdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're armchair experts like Dax Shepard um who that's like my all-time favorite podcast truly what got me into podcasting he's incredible um but thank you so much for being here today it you know it means the world to me I'm always just so appreciative of people taking time out of their busy lives because we're all we're all crazy busy so it's much appreciated I will have the website that you were talking about linked below and as well as Kendra's website and anything else that she should like me to link it'll all be in the description and um look for her incredible research that'll be coming out about tiktok and gonna gonna change our understanding of new media and language well thank you very much this was great (laughs) 